Welcome to Living the Questions, a podcast of the Unitarian Universalist Church of Cheyenne. Thank you for joining us. Here on Living the Questions, we wrestle. We wrestle with life's dilemmas, we wrestle with current events, and we wrestle with what it means to live lives of integrity. We hope that you find some community, some comfort, and some hope in this time together. To learn more about our congregation, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. Welcome all to our podcast for this week. This week, we are exploring the question, what does accountability look like in the beloved community? What does accountability look like in the beloved community? And we're going to dive into this question with some looking at uh, current events and at Unitarian Universalist history and theology. Um, And then we are going to have a conversation about prison abolition with uh, the Reverend Allison Farnham, who is the minister and executive director of the UU Prison Ministry of Illinois. So it's a jam-packed episode full of um, really tough questions about what does it actually mean to be accountable um, in, uh, in this beloved community. Let's dive in. We're going to um, do some wrestling now with current events. So there were sort of a number of ways that um, questions around accountability have shown up in the news this week. Um, I think about you know what's happening in Texas right now and questions around, you know, who can we hold accountable for this just absolutely massive failure of the power grid there? You know, and who who is responsible for that and who is going to be held responsible for that and for the damage it's causing to people's homes and lives and livelihoods. Um, and I also think about, you know, today on social media, right before I recorded this, I saw a passed around, um, you know, this photo of Ted Cruz getting ready to fly to Cancun, you know, while Texas is experiencing all of these devastating weather events and power outages and power shortages and water shortages and just like all this devastation. Um, But the current event that I want to lift up, because I think it's sort of one of the thorniest ones in some ways for our, um, for our universalism is the death of, uh, conservative talk radio pioneer, I guess, uh, Rush Limbaugh. And, you know, I always hesitate to give any more, (laughs) any more of my brain space to people like Rush Limbaugh than they already have. Um, But I think his death is an interesting invitation for us as you know, people who profess to be universalists um, to wonder about what accountability means for people who have done, you know, really significant harm, right? People who have, um, you know, shifted political media and rhetoric towards 
you know, normalizing racism, normalizing homophobia, normalizing misogyny in ways that have, have done irreparable harm to um, not just sort of our society, but to individual people too. Um, and so there's there's been a lot of, I feel like, conversation. Um, and maybe it's just because I'm Facebook friends with other UU clergy, um, that we are having these conversations about, you know, our, how we respond, um, theologically to Rush Limbaugh's death. And they have sort of ranged everywhere from, you know, sort of the, like, what I would say, like, you know, if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. Um, to people sort of saying, you know, like, I pray for comfort for his family, they're grieving, um, to people, you know, who are sort of saying, you know, I believe eventually he'll be reconciled to God, but maybe not to me. Um, you know, all the way over to people who I think are like, you know what? I'm glad he's dead. I don't care. Like, like any day where Rush Limbaugh is not talking is a great day. Right. So there's sort of this whole spectrum of potential responses to this man's death. And um, many of them are prefaced by th- things like, you know, I, I won't dance on anyone's grave or, you know, I don't wish harm on anyone because we're always like trying to hedge. Um, but I really feel like there's a question there about like the, how do we view like cosmic accountability and I think that's especially interesting as contemporary Unitarian Universalists right that you know our ancestors who we're going to talk about in a minute they sort of had a shared um, Christian cosmology in terms of what accountability would look like before or as a part of um, you know universal salvation and that we we do not have that sh- that same shared Christian cosmology, right? We don't even have a shared understanding of who God is, um, or at least not a not a you know fully shared understanding of who God is, and so or if there is a God, right? So like in this really theologically diverse space, how do we account for um, the lives of people who have done this kind of irreparable harm? And I, I would say that my answer is that um, I'm really grateful and excited. I rejoice that God loves everyone because I cannot. Um, right? I, I rejoice that I believe in a God who loves everyone and who will bring everyone into their embrace fully. And that includes Rush Limbaugh. Um, and I'm really grateful that there is the divine to do that work because I actually can't do that work. Like I cannot love Rush Limbaugh. That's just not in the scope of my human frailty. (laughs) And so I think that for me, that like my understanding of God is what helps me acknowledge the limits of my own kind of interpersonal human capacity for generosity. And 
we don't all share that theology. And so I, I think um, maybe this is just an invitation that whether you're, you identify as a Unitarian Universalist, as if you're listening or not, to ask yourself that question of, um, if I believe that there will be no eternal punishment in the afterlife, how does the universe account for irreparable harm? Whether it's Rush Limbaugh or somebody else, you know, how does the universe account for irreparable harm? To ground us in our Unitarian Universalist history and theology, we are going to bark up the Universalist branch of the family tree this week. Um, And we are going to talk about something called the Restorationist Controversy. Um, And so the Restorationist Controversy is about a time um, in Universalist history specifically when, you know, kind of in the early 1800s, you know, kind of like 1810s, 1820s, when universalists were not in agreement about the mechanics of how it would come to pass that we would all be saved. You know, how would it come to pass that we would all be restored fully into God's embrace and that there were different schools of thought about um, whether or not we would receive extra punishment in the afterlife for the sins that we had done in, um, you know, in sort of our earthly life. And they, they broke down along two lines generally, um, and that there were some folks who were called restorationists and that restorationists were people who believed that um, some amount of, you know, eternal or non-eternal, right? Like some amount of temporary punishment or temporary, I don't know, repentance in the afterlife um, or temporary, right? Like learning in the afterlife would be required in order for us to be fully restored into God's embrace for for all eternity. Um, and there were other folks who were who came to be called the ultra-universalists. And the ultra-universalists um, were folks who proposed that, uh, you know, like at the moment of your death, you were fully welcomed into God's embrace for all eternity. Like eternal salvation was yours, um, regardless of the life you'd lived in this world. And, um, you know, there's like a lot of, you know, kind of little pieces of like intrigue in it. uh, And that I feel like the restorationist controversy is also an example of, um, clergymen, and back then they were all clergymen behaving badly um, and like writing, you know, letters into publications, dragging each other and just being generally actually like very, very catty um, about their theology. Um, But it's an example, I think, of um, our early wrestling with what accountability means um, for us as universalists. And, um, you know, that sort of, and it leaves us with that question of like, what to do with, like, what to do with sin? Like what to do with the bad things that we have done? And um, particularly with that question of like, is, is, is some kind of 
punishment in the afterlife, does it act as a deterrent for people's bad behavior in this life? And um, I feel like the, I would say, based on the overall trajectory of humanity, despite having had lots of, you know, potential afterlife punishment lifted up for us at various times throughout human history, we have still found cause to behave badly at just about every turn. So I think I would say that um, it is not really an effective deterrent um, from bad behavior. But I do think about the piece of this that is sort of about, um, you know, how do we model here on earth the kind of accountability that we believe will happen in the afterlife. And so I I think for me, and I will take this moment to confess that um, I am a restorationist. I'm a restorationist universalist. Not that I think that like at the moment of our death, there will be an angel with a book who's like, well, you got 75 demerits over the course of your lifetime and therefore you have to go to this like cosmic room and do lines for a thousand years before you can be saved. Um, not like that. Um, but that, that we will, we will need to be accountable for the life for the life that we have lived. We will need to be accountable for the life that we have lived. And, um, you know, I think I'm agnostic enough about the afterlife itself that I, I don't have a like specific picture of what that means or what that looks like. But I think I also just my experiences of humanity in this life have led me to a place where um, I, I just don't I just don't know if at the moment of all of our deaths, there will just be a sudden joyful embrace. Because I think that, you know, I know that I have certainly done harm in this life, in this world. Um, And when I think about what's coming in whatever the next life is or means or looks like, um, I feel like I want to keep learning how to account for the harm that I have done. And so I want to start practicing that in this life and this world. I want to start practicing um, what it means to do the work of accountability that will then allow me to more fully and more joyfully um, embrace everything that is holy and beautiful and good and godly about this world. And so maybe that's at the core of this question for me around um, accountability and this question of, um, you know, are we going to be, will we we be required to atone in the next life is that it's about what are the kind of practices that I can engage in in my own life, in this world, in the now, to sort of prepare my soul, prepare my spirit, prepare the essence of my being um, for a world where accountability is not a punishment, but is a joyful process 
that we engage in um, readily and willingly in order to be held more fully in the embrace of, of the divine. Hi, I'm the Reverend Allison Farnham. I am the director and minister of the Unitarian Universalist Prison Ministry of Illinois. Well, splendid. Thank you for joining us, um, Reverend Allison. And uh, to get started, um, maybe what would be helpful in this conversation is if you offered folks a definition of uh, um, when you say, you know, I am a prison abolitionist. What does that mean? Well, any definition that I'm going to give is going to be couched in the understanding that abolition in general is a dynamic term, and it's inspired by a lot of uh, people who have been thinking on this far longer than me. So what I, what definition I like the best comes from the uh, social geographer and writer, professor, and activist Ruth Wilson Gilmore. And she describes abolition as presence. So that it's not just about the absence of police and prisons, but it is about presence and the presence of life-affirming institutions. Mm, that's, such a, that's such a lovely way to enter into the conversation. Well, I think it's way more grounded in our Unitarian Universalist theology where we understand or continue to live into the understanding that we are relational beings and that we are part of this interdependent web of life. And so understanding that there are systems that a lot, a lot of the times I'll hear like, okay, the policing system is broken the, um, the prison system is broken. What, what's also important to lift up is the presence of those systems and how they are functioning very, very well for a particular set of folks who are benefiting from it. And so I think it's really important to begin to build systems that are outside of that. So reform is something that comes up a lot. And um, yeah, I think that it's, it's interesting to con consider that abolition doesn't mean that there aren't short-term solutions that help the quality of life for people who are inside prisons. Um, but in the end, abolition is, it's a vision that that there are glimpses of, just like, um, you know, as ministers, especially in the parish, right? Like every Sunday, it's, it's preaching a sermon that's holding up a vision that there have been glimpses of, not necessarily like it's there all the time, but to simply say like, well, that doesn't exist yet, so we're not gonna talk about it, is really taking away our religious imagination and that often gets talked about with abolition as well, that it's a reclaiming of imagination and that we have relegated our imagination mm. systems that fail humanity. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm curious to hear you talk a little bit kind of about how you came to your position on abolition, right? Like what, if, you, if you're willing to talk a little bit about that journey um, into being comfortable and willing to really hold up that vision um, consistently, uh, because I think that for many Unitarian Universalists, we sometimes like we don't we don't always talk about how we get to these new positions or how we get to these new visions for how we want to be together as a community. Right. Well, you know, for me, this is still fairly new for me. So every time I talk about abolition, I'm learning more about and clarifying my thinking on it. And I think that that's that's what abolition is about is understanding that it's being in process in relationship. So I began this position as director and minister of the Unitarian Universalist Prison Ministry of Illinois a little over a year ago. And like, I grew up Unitarian Universalist. I've always had a heart for justice. I've always had um, a heart for learning about, um, about those who have been pushed to the margins um, and being in social justice circles and part of like the anti-war movement in the early 2000s. And, uh, you know, it was like, yeah, of course I'm an abolitionist. You know, it was just like kind of rubbing elbows with the idea, but not really until I began this work. You know, in my interview, it was like, are you an abolitionist? I was like, of course I'm an abolitionist. But I, I really, I really didn't know what it meant. And I, I guess I want to say I still don't, I'm still learning and trying to understand what it is. And, and what I like about a lot of the folks who talk about abolition is that it is this learning, growing process that, that we're in that's about relationship. So I think for me, it really is about once I began to have some relationships with people who are locked up in Illinois prisons, the idea of abolition became something that wasn't just like something that I listened about in podcasts or read about in books or could drop a couple names of cool people who are uh, you know, at the nexus of the hive mind of abolitionist thinking, but instead it's, it's a slow beginning of, of me being in relationship with people who are locked up and beginning to understand in a more embodied experiential way how wrong it is to lock people in cages. Yeah, and I, um, thinking about that question of, right, coming to understand in a more intimate way um, how wrong it is to lock people in cages, I wonder if you could, uh, you know, just like, uh, unpack that a little bit more that when you think about um, like wh why, right? And I think that there's part of it that's, right, it feels, well, obviously it's wrong. Um, and yet I think that there are um, plenty of uh, folks who sort of feel prepared to defend the other position in terms of like, here are all of the reasons that it's absolutely necessary for our society um, to lock people in cages. And so if if you could kind of explore the other piece of that of, you know, why both from a kind of society perspective and also from a Unitarian Universalist perspective, why is it wrong um, to put, put people behind bars? Oh, there are so many reasons that it's wrong. 
I mean, even just like beginning to, in a more embodied experiential way, understand the, the conditions that, that folks are living in, um, in prisons, the, uh, the dehumanization, the fact that one in 12 children in the United States have had the experience or are experiencing a parent who is locked up in prisons and jails. And just thinking about the impact of that. Um, you know, we say we honor the inherent worth and dignity of every person. And at the same time are allowing the state to sort of be in charge of that. Again, it's like that relegation of imagination and, um, or the fact that we're all caught up in this interdependent web of life together and that um, just simply pushing someone out and isolating them is if, if they have done some kind of harm is not ultimately going to be a solution that serves the health of the whole. And so this idea of, um, of a culture that's based on punishment is squarely outside of our universalist theology that says no one is outside the circle of love and that redemption is possible. And I think part of, part of the filter of the culture that a lot of people are steeped in is through the media and through television and film, which really paints this picture of, um, you know, sort of like, I don't know, like law and order, right? And not like law and order, like Reagan and Trump's law and order, but like the show law and order, yeah. but they're all kind of in, wrapped up in the same culture that's based really, um, it's very um, centered around white supremacy. And um, I think that the way that media and television have portrayed the criminal, and then of course, like the criminalization, dehumanization, and over-surveillance of Black, Brown, um, Indigenous neighborhoods and communities. It, I mean, it all points to like, to the, the fact that this is, this is wrong and this is not, um, and just because, uh, just because it's hard to be a part of supporting and listening to those who are on the front lines or who are um, have lived experience with this and who are saying like, we need something different. We need to, just because it's hard to create communities that are life affirming that can, that can create circles or um, where we can look at harm that's done and, and try to lean deeper into this world we dream of where we actually can look at generative conflict and find ways to not only repair harm, but also heal the, the systems or creating new systems that are life affirming. It's just, I know it's, it can feel impossible, but like every Sunday we sing about peace and love and hope and faith. And like all of these things are not um, always there. Like we just have to work at it bit by bit and work in coalition and partnership with organizations that have been doing this work for ages. Like, I think that one thing that's really important to recognize is that, um, that there are partic 
people from particular communities who don't want to call the police. Like if they're gonna call the police, they have to like to help them, they have to understand that the police, they have to go through a whole system of discernment. Like, well, the police may or may not actually help me. They may harm me. Mm-hmm. And I may end up getting assaulted, hurt, or arrested and jailed myself. Mm-hmm. So like if you're from the LGBTQ plus community, there's a whole level of discernment around that. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, sex workers or even, I mean, especially like women of color. And um, there's a really beautiful book uh, by a woman whose last name is Richie and it, it's called Invisible No More. And she writes about how women of color, particularly when talking about um, liberation and talking about prisons and jails and policing and surveillance, they get left out of the conversation. Mm-hmm. And, um, and that there, there has to be a real sense of discernment if one is going to be calling because the, the chances of them being harmed by calling the police is statistically much higher than if a, you know, a straight white woman, woman were to call. Yeah. I mean, there's just so many reasons, you know, it's like, yes. <laughs> go, yeah. go, see, go do a watch party on Netflix for 13th, you know? Mm-hmm. No, there's like, and I think that that's um, the, that I, I wonder if sometimes um, folks in our congregations and communities who don't have lived experience of, you know, the like, overreach of the criminal justice system, the dehumanization of the prison system, and, and other sort of functions of um of the right, the carceral state, that it it can feel overwhelming to try to engage with that question, and I think you're right that sometimes I think especially um, especially white folks, especially people with significant class privilege, right, who are who are more likely to have avoided contact with the criminal justice system, that the amount of imagination that it requires feels overwhelming. Mm-hmm in order to imagine something different. And that's not to say that that's an excuse because that's a like, that's a crummy excuse, um, especially for a people who um, right, like have imagined a way to do religion without a creed. Um, uh, I think lacking imagination is a crummy excuse for anything. Um, <laughs> right? Like we've imagined a lot as Unitarian yeah. Universalists to suggest that we can't imagine um, an alternative societal structure around accountability for harm is is a um is 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 silly that's well i i I think you're getting into some good stuff there reverend hannah because it really is like whenever i preach about abolition i end up preaching about you know covenant and Mm -hmm. how we talk about covenant and that these are these sacred promises we make to each other and that we're gonna mess up, right? I mean, like we're humans and I grew up Unitarian Universalist and I, I know that, that there are cultures out there in Unitarian Universalism that really communicate to someone coming in new that you're supposed to be fully formed and, and you know, highly educated, you know, go through the, all the stereotypes Mm-hmm. And at the same time, like I have, I have also grown up Unitarian Universalist in cultures that say, oh, you are loved, honey. Just come on in. Mm-hmm. You know, so yeah. it's, it's all there, right? So it's like, how do, 
how do we begin to to really build up our muscles around covenant around what is generative conflict what are what is where are our places of integrity where are our boundaries as a community mm-hmm. and what what is it what does that dance look like you know i mean that to me i think i i think that in itself these are radical acts of imagination of our religious imagination yeah and well and i'm curious to hear from you you know how like how do you tend to that imagination within yourself because i think that sometimes um we either like we describe ourselves as the, you're like I'm an imaginative person I wrote stories as a kid or like I'm not an imaginative person that's just like I'm an accountant that's just who I am um uh, right and we kind of categorize ourselves when we get mm-hmm. calcified mm-hmm. as adults yeah um, but I agree with you that I think that um capacity for imagination and that capacity for I love that phrase right generative conflict the idea that like change is inherently involved like change and conflict are often paired together um but like how do you build that and muscle for imagination within yourself and how have you seen it built um, in other unitarian universalists Mm. yeah i mean for me the body is the gateway to my soul which i imagine is like that that wellspring of creativity and imagination and the holy right so any kind of embodied work, whether it's you know yoga or meditation, um, even even some you know workouts for me feel like they've awakened some place in me that uh, that is it is kind of a, a self care, just reminding that those spaces are available. Um, and I understand that different people have different ways of doing that. And I think what we have the opportunity to do, and, and when I've seen things go well, it's, it's really inviting a sense of versatility amongst individuals. So it's like, okay, so you, um, you're an accountant. That doesn't mean you're not imaginative. That doesn't mean that there aren't these creative spaces for you, but let's talk about what that is. Let's talk about like, if you had a box a big box and you were five years old or four years old, what would you do with that big box? You know, I mean, like, I think that there are, there are ways that we can still play. And one of the things I found, so before this work, uh, I was serving at the Unitarian Universalist Church of Fort Myers, Florida. And down there, I was serving people who, you know, Fort Myers is an area where you have more retirement age and up. And that the those were the demographics of the congregation. So, you know, a bit of an older set, but I'll tell you what, some of them may be retired, but they were not retiring. I mean, they were going for it. And the, you know, so it's like age is not an excuse either in terms of the ability to develop versatility and, and explore ways that we can creatively engage even when things are challenging and difficult and, you know, play, I mean, and play, I guess, Part of it is that play isn't always fun. Like play, a lot of kids when they're playing and you know everybody who's written about play writes about this, that most of the play is like just setting it up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like they may not even ever get to actually play house. They're just figuring out the roles and who's doing what. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's church. Yeah. Well, and right, like thinking about, um, I think that, right, like that so much of it is just trying to imagine the roles 
Mm. or and I think it right imagining the roles for ourselves um, in these movements for abolition and movements for liberation um, that that's a really key piece because I think that sometimes um, folks stop at sort of I don't I don't see how I have a part in that or like I don't mm-hmm. see what I whether whether it's sort of I don't see what I have to contribute or I don't see how my skills talents mindset you know framework on the world can fit in with that movement um, right right well and you know I mean one of the things is that we don't we're not like plastering abolition all over because I think it it somehow has this this the idea that we could live in a world without caging humans, like really, let's think about that, seems extreme. It's, it's like it's been painted culturally abolition as this very extreme position. And, and so I would rather have a conversation about it. And I would rather model that through the ways that we can of leaning in with love during times um, of challenge and strife that are interpersonal or you know, relational. So I just think it's important to, to lift that up that, you know, abolition is, it is a conversation. And I think that it's important to think about, you know, like you said, it's like, you know, I'm curious to hear from you, like, what do you think your role could be? Mm-hmm. Well, and, and thinking about, um, you know, like you said, like that the, the right sort of the setup of the play, that that's church, yeah. you know, I think about the ways that, um, that church can become a place of experimentation and play in terms of how can, how, how might we construct a community um, that values accountability, but not punishment, right? Like how, how might that look? And I think about your sort of your own description of your transition from abolition being like a sort of right, like a theoretical political position. Right. Um, and towards it becoming a, a relational position. And so uh, maybe if, I don't know, if, if you have a, a thoughts about like, what are the things that we could be doing in UU congregations that would help us move from, you know, kind of like the abolition as political position orientation and towards that abolition as a relational thing within our community? Oh yeah. I mean, there, there are so many things that can be done. I mean, if you look at, you know, the different, the, the talent and treasure and time that, that folks devote in congregational life, all of that, all of those different personalities can be translated into ministering to those who are locked up. You know, I mean, think mm-hmm. about, so our organization, it began for, to, to want through this desire to be present to folks who are locked up in Illinois prisons, particularly around the concern of, was there anything for folks who weren't really kind of mainline right-wing Christian evangelical? Was there any spiritual care for folks who were questioning, who needed to talk from a non-dogmatic space? So that was a a reason to get inside and and want to, to be present to folks. And also to be present to folks LGBTQ plus who would be marginalized in, in all manner of ways, um, particularly around spiritual care. Mm-hmm. So that access, you know, think about that when we think about folks in their pastor in the pastoral care team. You know, those folks who who want to 
want to be present to someone and to meet them where they are, right? The, the chaplains in the congregation, there's that kind of work. Um, there's also the work that we do of facilitating pen pal relationships in a partner relationship we have with the Church of the Larger Fellowship through the Worthy Now prison ministry. And so we have trainings for pen pals and um, so just help support that work and congregations have um, different pen pals. And the pen pal relationship, it, it can start out just writing letters, but it can also really grow into, you know, if, if you know, just like any other relationship, you see where you want it to go, could be phone calls um, when things aren't in shutdown mode, potentially visits, you know, in-person visits. Um, so there are lots of different ways of being present to a friend and then also being in touch with that person who's inside about what they would like to see that's different and educating one's legislators about that. Let educating the legislators of the, um, the inside pen pal, the person who's locked up. Mm -hmm. So uh, all of the advocacy, like for us, it was like we're inside and so we need to be doing advocacy efforts. So say y'all don't necessarily have like the Wyoming, the UU prison ministry of Wyoming doesn't exist, but it's, it, it can be, you know, look for where there are people who are at the front lines, people who are directly impacted, whether it's organizations that are, you know, centered around supporting loved ones, people who have loved ones incarcerated, mm -hmm. um, whether it's around care and support or whether it's around say like getting direction around advocacy you know, because it's really important to always center the voices that are coming directly from people who are locked up or, you know, recently released. Yeah. And then one thing I'll say about recently released is the, the trauma of prison is long lasting. It is so long lasting that, I mean, I recently released, uh, it could be like someone who's been out for 10 years and still feeling adrift. You know, it's like, Nobody ever talks about this, but there's one um, thinker and writer in, who centered it around in Chicago named Monica Cosby. Mm -hmm. And she talks about community for her and, um, and how important community was for her in prison and to no longer be there and to wonder like, where are my peeps at? You know, it's like, it's, it's huge. Mm -hmm. And to not forget the power of community that we have to offer as Unitarian Universalists in whatever way we can do it. Mm -hmm. oh, well, those are such, right, such reminders that the, um, a commitment to abolition, both sort of within the, the proverbial four walls of our congregations and in our broader communities, right, it's not a, um, it doesn't mean that we suddenly have to like do everything differently. It just means in some ways that we just, we actually need to, to recommit to mm -hmm. the core values of Unitarian Universalism and mm -hmm. the, draw the circle of who we view as part of that community, even ever wider. And that's that, right. And that doing those things um, doesn't represent something that's actually a radical shift. It's more of you know, just like a radical level of commitment to what we already say we're committed to. Right. Radical as in root, right? Yes. Like getting to the root of mm -hmm. what, what draws us together. Yeah. And if we want to be in right relationship with earth 
and her people. I think it's about recentering around like who are her people. Mm. You know, there was that that rebel rabbi guy who Jesus, who was like, Yeah, you need to be going out at the edges. Because here I am. This is this is where the center really is. Yeah. And I think that that's that's it. Is these relationships bring a sense of transformation and expansion that is, you know, getting into that space of abundance. And that's that's the other thing that I really love is like looking when you look at abolition as, you know, the, the affirmation of life affirming institutions. And building those and being a part of that, that's getting into that creative, abundant dream space. And that everyone has a place there, the worker bees, the visionaries, the, um, the, the doubters who are going to worry and help with all the things that might go wrong. You know, I mean, mm-hmm. we have all of these people, all of these tools and resources, we have all everything that we need. Uh, it's just about that sense. I, I think education is a huge piece. It's just, just continuing to invite some education around the prison industrial complex. And, and oftentimes just those introductory sessions, um, we offer some around that. And, you know, it really is, it's, it's an experience for folks to have. Mm-hmm. And to be in spaces also, often there are people, you know, there are Unitarian Universalists who may have never, ever realized that they could reveal that they had a loved one who was locked up, mm-hmm. right? So there's like that moment of a deep breath of relief to know that they're not alone because mm-hmm. nobody, nobody talks about it, mm-hmm. at least in some places they don't. Yeah. So we can be the places where we can talk about it and wake ourselves up to that reality again and again, even if it's not fun to look at. Yeah. Well, the Reverend Allison Farnham, thank you for joining us and for just offering some of your perspective um, on uh, abolition. Thank you. It's been wonderful. And I'm looking forward to being with the community on Sunday. Thank you for listening. Your presence matters to us. Whether you are here in Cheyenne or across the globe, we are grateful that you would spend this time with us. If you'd like to connect more with our community, you can visit our website at uucheyenne.org. I'm the Reverend Hannah Roberts Vilnave, and on behalf of a grateful community, thank you. We'll see you soon.